Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast. My name is Brett Arnold, at Brett Redacted on Twitter. I'm here today with Jesse Hassinger, at Rock Marooned on Twitter. Yet again, we're here to talk about the prequel to The Exorcist again. Yes, <laughs> that's right. There are two prequels to The Exorcist, technically speaking. There's Exorcist The Beginning, the 2004 Rennie Harlan film, and there's today's uh, entry in the franchise, Paul Schrader's Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. I believe it's technically a 2005 release, but this was the movie made before <laughs> Rennie Harlan's movie that the studio the studio basically hated this movie so much they got Rennie Harlan to make another one completely. So is it was it worth it? You'll find out today. Uh, I was very excited for this movie as a Paul Schrader fan, um, and it's just kind of like a weird, you know, trivia about Hollywood and like this movie and the fact that there's two versions of it. So it was really interesting to finally see them both. And I have, boy, do we have opinions on these movies. Um, Before we get to Dominion, we have some news and I just want to give a heads up. There's like a hundred or 200. I don't know. There's like a, a couple days worth of listeners who got to hear the antebellum episode before the very fine people at uh, Lionsgate's PR company for this movie uh, very kindly asked us to hold the episode until the movie's out, since we were so spoiler-heavy in our discussion of the film. So the episode that we did about Antebellum will drop officially on Friday. So two days from now, if you're listening to this Dominion episode, the day we dropped it, uh, Antebellum... We've seen it. We talked about it at length. We spoiled the hell out of it. Uh, so if you want to listen to that episode and you're interested in the movie, I would suggest watching it first and then coming to us. And then I'm going to go ahead and apologize for making you watch it first. I'll do that right now. Um, so yeah, if you if there's some of you who listened to the episode. Some A lot of you are asking where it went because they saw it disappear. Uh, we put it back under private until friday so it'll be back up friday so the the news segment this week may be a bit out of whack because we did a new segment on antebellum episode and now i have new news since then so you might have to double back and get the rest of the news in the antebellum episode so this is a lot of uh a lot of prep before this episode starts jesse what's going on in your world oh not too much it's you know, the same old thing. Same um, old thing. It's it's yeah. fall weather now. Yes. Very exciting. Uh, I watched the movie, a movie that I th- uh, thought was... G- you actually gave me a heads up on this movie, and I thought was going to be a horror movie of some sort, and totally wasn't, but was really good, uh, which is The Nest. Oh, uh, yeah. Not a horror movie at all. No. 
uh, I don't know if that almost feels like a spoiler to say that it's not a horror movie because I watched the whole thing feeling a sense of pervasive dread. 100%. (laughs) It is shot. um, It is like a domestic drama shot as a horror movie or shot like a horror movie or composed like one. It is definitely takes some cues from the genre. Yeah, it's really just like a drama movie about uh, adults having some trouble with their marriage and and careers. But it is about three quarters of the way through. I was like, oh, this is just going to be this is a short this is a short story type thing. That's going to be like a a tragedy, but not a horror thriller. And it's not even really that uh, even more interesting. But it's a really cool movie from Sean Durkin, who did. Martha, Marcy, Martha, Marcy, Marlene. Whatever. <laughs> really nailed that. Um, yeah. It's uh, let me let me think. Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, starring. Yes. Uh, was that her debut film, Elizabeth Olsen? I want to say it, it was. It, it, it may have been. If not, it was certainly the one that put her on the map. That's right. Uh, it was uh, that movie's about a woman leaving a cult. Uh, and I feel like the note here about The Nest is that Sean Durkin hasn't made a movie since then, which was like a decade ago or more. Yeah, almost, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was a long time ago. The Nest isn't out yet. It's out soon. Uh, I got a screener of it, thanks to Jesse. Uh, on, <laughs> I, I don't know why they gave it to me for the New Flesh podcast, other than uh, it's a drama that pretends to be a horror movie, so I guess it kind <laughs> of qualifies. But um, I, I definitely enjoyed the movie as well, even though it was, I was also just waiting for like a shoe to drop and it was just definitely understated instead. And I yeah. just appreciated the performances. It's all very good. A lot of horses, a lot of, or a lot of horse, not horses. There's one horse. <laughs> but there's a lot of horse imagery. But there's a lot of horse. That one, they get a lot of use out of their horse. Yeah. <laughs> fucking horse um yeah bad year for uh for horse girls at the movie between movies between this and horse girl that allison really upset me you liked it i did i i I, yeah i dug it um i i you know i could see like a regular audience especially if they had been primed this could have been a real f cinema cinema score situation with the right trailers oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah but uh because I think it is it is playing in some theaters this Friday before it moves to to the VOD in November. I think. Uh, I wonder if they'll change those plans because like I don't feel like theaters are really going to be open much longer. Um, but I could see regular audiences saying through this and being like, "What?" But I, yeah. you know, I can I vibe with it and, and thought, yeah, Jude Law and uh, Carrie Coon are, are really good in it, and the, I thought both of the kid actors who who are in it are really good. Yes. it's just like a really interesting, strange movie, and, it, and it's interesting. It doesn't give you the payoff of a horror thing, but it does give you some of those feelings. So I feel like it almost counts just because of the way that it kind of feels unsettling and kind of spooky. And I think one of the pull quotes on like the poster or whatever calls it eerie. And it is, it's eerie, even though it's not like a movie about ghosts or anything. Oh yeah. That's that pull quote is going to really spearhead that cinema score. That is brutal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, the nest is something we'll talk about, or I don't know. We probably won't talk about it more because it's not horror, but if you're interested in the nest tweet at us, we'll talk about it with you. I'm very interested in talking about it. It's, it's definitely a cool movie. Um, And you just, led to something talking about theaters that I think we should start with in the news segment, which is that, you know, a couple weeks out from Tenet quote unquote opening in theaters across the country. And the, the verdict is in that it like kind of failed the experiment of like, will Americans go to the movies again? Uh, So Tenet's doing fine internationally. It's got already, I think $200 million 
uh, factoring in international territories. But it's made a very paltry sum in the U.S., especially when you consider that I think they were inflating the first week's numbers with Canadian box office, which they usually don't do. So, like, it did even worse than it was supposed to have done. Yeah, it's uh, well. I usually do include Canadian box office in the uh, in the domestic. Yeah, when they domestic does include Canada, but they did kind of count it twice at least at first, where they reported it with the international numbers and then reported it again with the U.S. with the domestic numbers. It's yeah, it's just not. It's it's you know it's. Uh, certainly taking into account lower capacity and theaters not being open everywhere. But even so, it's just like, it, you know, understandably, and people are not flocking back to the movies in the middle of all this. <laughs> yeah, it totally makes sense. And it's so fascinating that, or it's like ironic or something, that Chris Nolan was so intent on, quote, saving cinema. Or maybe that was just the narrative ascribed to what he was trying to do by putting Tenet back out. And he was so adamant about getting it in theaters. But like, what Nolan did here is going to end up shooting the industry in the foot because theaters are now open and operating in however many territories they are, pretty much all but New York and L.A., as far as I can tell. And that means they're incurring costs again, where, like, when AMCs were shuttered, and I, this applies for Regals and Cinemarks as well, or I, I know for a fact that AMC was not paying rent. They just had said, we're not paying rent during the pandemic while this uh-huh. all happens. And I don't know how they got away with it, but they, that's what they were doing. And now that they're open again, uh, presumably everything is, you know, they're paying rent again. They're doing everything they have to do when they're operating. So they're going to end up hurting theaters even more because now theaters are open and just bleeding because no one is going. Um, I, I keep hearing from people who go see Tenet in the middle of the week and they're like, yeah, I went at two o'clock and I was the only person there. So like, if you want to see Tenet, it's fucking now's your chance. You better go. Because theaters are going to close up again, most likely, because I think we talked about on the Antebellum episode, didn't uh, Wonder Woman moved from November or from October to Christmas Day. And I don't know if there's been any other announcements since then, but I feel like everything is kind of just going to migrate away from theaters now. Yeah, now the next uh, movie coming out scheduled for wide release is Death on the Nile on October 23rd. And I feel like there's no way in hell that's happening. Um, it would make, I think that movie would make a lot of sense too for VOD, just like the type of movie it is. And like, I could probably even grow the Hercule Poirot fan base on VOD. Um, and I think they haven't done it yet, but Black Widow and, uh, Soul are both probably going to bounce from November as well. So we're looking at like almost nothing. Maybe the James Bond movie will still come out in November, but I don't know. It seems kind of dicey at this point. Which is unsustainable for theaters because the whole thing is like they were trying to get Tenet to be the bellwether and like it is the fucking canary in the coal mine. They did it. They set it up and the results are bad. (laughs) And it's like, hey, no one's coming. Uh, So let's so basically everything that's happening now is 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 a result of Tenet underwhelming and Warner Brothers who what does Warner Brothers have that they just shifted? Was it? Well, they, they were going to do, you know, Tenant September, Wonder Woman October, Dune December. Now they've moved Wonder Woman to a week after Dune in December, which seems to heavily imply that Dune will lo- will move soon for 2021. And I wouldn't even be surprised if they do want to keep Wonder Woman there, if they eventually move Dune and move Wonder Woman up a week to take that Dune spot. For now, they're kind of leaving it open. But yeah, Warner Brothers was going to offer this chain of like, 
Well, you get Tenet for a month, and then you get Wonder Woman for a couple months, and then you get Dune. And now it's down to, well, you can have Tenet for indefinitely. <laughs> you have Tenet until the theaters decide to close down again because they're just hemorrhaging. Yeah, and then, and then again, what's the idea? Please open up again when we have Wonder Woman at Christmas? It just seems like maybe they should take a mulligan and, uh, and start over next year when it's when things are looking a little rosier. <laughs> yeah, it, it was kind of, I mean, just like everything. Like, it was just announced, say, the Big Ten's coming back, like, football-wise. It's like all this shit that's coming back, it, it, especially when I think the LSU coach said yesterday that, like, the whole team fucking had it. And, yeah. and he, he's just hoping they don't get it again, just falsely claiming that people don't get it again, which isn't true. So yeah. it's just like, yeah, it's all a mess to try to – capitalism amid a pandemic is, is not really working out so hot. Um, yeah. The sports thing – I mean, people are watching football. People are watching everything that's on. I understand the need and desire for people – like, I'm watching all that the sports that are happening, but – people watching sports at home is way different than people going to a theater to see a movie. If they yeah. were, if the conversation shifted to VOD, uh, just for the pandemic. And then we all decided to go back to theaters a year later. Like that's, a, that would be an interesting new conversation, but like that just wouldn't work because what would happen is no one would go back to theaters and yeah. theaters would just be done. And I don't want that. I don't think anybody really, well, I mean, some people want that, but a lot of people don't. And, um, it's all really, scary for fans of theaters right now because they did open and this was what we want like a lot of people wanted this and you know you and i we we went and we did it the way we were comfortable with and people can do that still and i'm happy it's an option and i'm also not surprised that people aren't going yeah yeah no i mean like that's that's the thing i feel like you the same way that you know we went to the, the movies because it was like a, a thing we could figure out like, Oh, okay. I can, you know, figure out how to rent a private theater, blah, blah, blah. But the, the casual movie goer that apparently makes up a ton of the box office, the people who go to like five a year or whatever, three a year are not going to roll out. They're not going to make one of their three mystery movie during a pandemic. They're not thinking about how do you rent out a private theater and, and spare and you know uh, spare no expense to to see a Christopher Nolan movie or or a God forbid an X Men movie on the big screen like the those casual moviegoers just want to like roll out for their like three events of the year and do that and have it be relatively unfussy and of course yeah if you're like going that's that's not it's never going to be it's not unfussy right now like you're thinking about a lot of other stuff if you're going to think about going to the movies right now uh so i just think it's like a, a lot of bandwidth that people understandably you know and arguably shouldn't be like thinking about how do i you know go to a movie on a friday night with other people so it's just you know the whole thing is just it's a huge bummer that they that they seem like they tried this too early and as a result might screw it up for much longer. <laughs> yeah, it's all just a bummer. But uh, I guess this is our warning that theaters are in jeopardy of closing again. So if you want to see Tenet, which I don't even really recommend, I certainly don't recommend risking uh, your livelihood to see it. It's not it's not a great movie. It's OK. I, I loved going to see it. I had a great time and I would see it again if the theaters in New York were open just to fucking do it. But um, my point is they're probably going to shut down again soon. So uh, act now or just wait until fucking Warner Brothers throws up, throws in the towel and puts it on VOD in America because <laughs> it's it's you know, it, it, it'll be at 250 worldwide in the by the end of the month, at least, if not 300. Like, I think it'll do 
you know, not the numbers they were hoping for, but enough to not lose money. And then putting it on VOD at a premium could get some more money. Like it'll, they'll be fine. I'm not worried about them. Yeah. It's like a face saving gross for them in terms of just like pure numbers because international seems to be healthy, but it's, it is, it's kind of like besides losing, you know, a lot of American money, it's like an embarrassment to them too, that they've like, they were the ones, one of the handful of studios still considering doing this and that it was kind of botched. Yep, they blew it. Uh, okay, rest of the news. Lizzie Kaplan and Anthony Starr are going to lead the cast of the creator of the Netflix horror series Mary Ann's new uh, TV show or movie? Nope, movie. Lionsgate horror movie called Cobweb. The film centers on a small town in an ordinary house that seems like any other where a young boy hears a mysterious tapping from inside the walls and suspects his parents are hiding a terrible secret. Uh, Is it Brahms? Is the secret Brahms? Dude... If this was a stealth Brahms sequel, I would be the happiest boy on earth. The boy would be me, and I would be happy. Um, Marianne is great. Great French horror series on Netflix that unfortunately did not get renewed. Um, production begins later this month in, in Bulgaria. Apparently, uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are producing through Point Grey. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan plays Carol, the mother of the young boy. Anthony Starr plays the boy's father. Woody Norman, I guess, is probably the boy. Stars as Peter. Timid boy becomes increasingly troubled by the strange tapping he hears within the walls at night. Um, so, tapping in the walls films. We've got The Boy. We've got The Boy 2, which is definitely less of a tapping in the walls film. But we have uh, The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Speak on that movie. Did you see it? I did. The House with a Clock in Its Walls. I did see... Uh, I was, I'm not even like a big anti Eli Roth guy, but I was underwhelmed by it. I found it sort of surprisingly considering the cast and the pedi- is it pedigree. I don't know if it's a pedigree to say it's, it's the other Eli Roth, but like the, you know, just what it was going for and everything. I found it kind of surprisingly underwhelming, especially because a lot of people gave it the, the gentleman's three out of four star review. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, I think we even, uh, switched to that movie. My, my wife and I, when it was coming out, like had an opportunity to see a movie and, and leave our kid with the grandmother sitter. And we were like deciding which to go to with. And we went with house of the clock and its walls on its last minute. I guess I, I found out that when my, my mom who was babysitting my kid that weekend was here, she was like, Oh yeah. You know, the guy who wrote that, like your dad was, and I were friends with him. And I was like, oh, the book, like, like the book, what? yeah, yeah, the oh. guy who wrote the book, yeah, not the screenplay. Um, so that game, like, I guess he was a he was a friend of my family so, friend of my yeah. Father. Maybe you you could one day visit the house with the clock in its walls. <laughs> That's right. Um, so that kind of tipped me. That I was like, oh well, if you knew Dad, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> Yeah, I'll go to see the the Jack Black horror movie, and uh, yeah, I was you know I just felt like kind of like it kind of found it tedious. There was also. Uh, a, a girl next to me at the screen who who was like talking the whole time and when I shushed her she like gave me lip and it was it was the whole experience was kind of lame but yeah the movie I just didn't find it that yeah not that I had high hopes for it it wasn't that good I love that on the 2020 episode of this podcast I'm reviewing I'm making you review the fucking house with the clock on its walls from like a year <laughs> Finally, or two ago I can speak my piece about it <laughs> well I um I did I demanded you to do it I I really wanted you to because I'll tell you why. Because I went to see it in IMAX, or not real IMAX, fake IMAX, at Kipps uh-huh. Bay IMAX. Because... Oh, man, I might have done that, too. Were we at the same time? <laughs> Maybe we were there at the same time. Honestly, did I? because I'll tell you what happened to me. I 
was there. It was one of those days where like I snuck away from work early and went to like a three o'clock or a four o'clock or something. And Trump announced a surprise press conference and I was on the on duty still. So I fucking didn't watch the movie at all. But the movie <laughs> I went uh, the reason I went to see it at all is because they were showing Thriller in IMAX before. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I didn't see that. Uh, so I went and saw that and had a blast watching Thriller, um, which is, you know, such a great music video. Really cool to see in IMAX, especially with no one. Like, there was one. I don't think it was the screening you were at because there was nobody in there but me. Uh, there was one other, like, family that now that you mention it was pretty loud. <laughs> um, but they were there. Uh, and basically I had, I left like an hour into the movie because I was basically doing like Trump press conference stuff on my phone, like just not watching it. And then I was like, I'm not giving this movie its proper due. I'll watch it. I'll watch it on VOD. And then it's been on VOD for a long time and I haven't (laughs) made the effort. (laughs) So you just confirmed that I'm not going to ever make the effort. Yeah. Uh, final, go ahead. No, I was just saying it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's negligible negligible if if i uh when we have children and they they're like can we watch a bad jack black movie i'll be like you got it i'll find yeah. it <laughs> uh final destination creator jeffrey reddick a uh, friend of the show uh past and future guest uh his directorial debut don't look back just got a release date october 16th it'll be quote unquote in theaters and on demand uh courtney bell stars as Caitlin Kramer, a woman overcoming a tragic past who is among several people who see a man being fatally assaulted. When the witnesses start dying mysteriously, she must unearth if they're being targeted by a killer or something far more insidious. So pretty similar to a Final Destination premise. We love Jeffrey Reddick. Uh, I'll, I'll be there. I'll watch it. Um, David Cronenberg's crash is coming to Criterion, and I know you were tickled by this. Because you <laughs> only because my I mean this is just one of those things where you don't have time to rewatch every single movie you watch when you're a certain age and I saw Crash when I was like 17 and like I you know understood what I was getting into but still and it was actually kind of hyped for it like it never came to my town so I watched it on VHS and was kind of like oh no I don't I don't like this at all <laughs> and I like Cronenberg a lot this may have even been like this maybe like the second Cronenberg movie I saw or something crazy like that um, but then it's one of those things where I found out like, oh, like the hardcore cinephile people really love this movie. And I not having re- revisited it, I don't, e- even though I like almost every other Cronenberg movie I've seen, I don't really understand it. It's cool that it's going I mean, yeah, I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, rain on anyone's parade. I was just sort of like baffled to see like 50 tweets in like an hour of people being like, yes, crash. Fuck. Yeah. It's like the, the car fucking movie. All right. All right. Maybe. Um, yeah, so I, I was one of those people who tweeted, uh, that I was excited about it. I just recently rewatched it because I have Netflix DVD mail and it's, you know, the only way you can get that movie is on DVD. It's been hard to get for a long time. So oh. that's why I'm excited for this release. Cause I just want to see it. The new 4k remaster. There's a new audio commentary from Cronenberg. There's a bunch of cool shit on there. I do think you should revisit it. it I want, I'm very curious what you think seeing it now. But it is a fuck. It's a weird movie. It's a very strange movie. I would love to read the book that it's based on. Um, I keep buying all these books that Cronenberg movies are based on, and I haven't read them yet. <laughs> but I have twins that uh, what's it called? Dead Dead Ringers. Yeah, 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 yeah. My 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 fiance picked that book up. She goes, "Is this the book that the?" Schwarzenegger DeVito thing is based on? I'm like, no, but you're kind of close. 
another zany movie about twins. I think my, I think the reason, I mean, like, this is kind of retro, retroactive bullshit because I didn't know that much about Cronenberg when I saw Crash. But in retrospect, I feel like I like his movies more when I find them funny. And I don't remember Crash being funny at all. And some of the, like, less well-regarded recent ones I do think are funny. And I think that weirdly carries a lot of weight with me. Like, I thought Dangerous Method was pretty funny, just despite, like... Dangerous Method I own on Blu-ray and need to rewatch because I saw it in theaters uh, stoned with two friends of mine who were not Cronenberg fans and knew nothing about it. And there was no one in the theater. And we just were all, like, tickled by Keira Knightley's goofy performance. Like, we were not enjoying that movie for what it was. And I have never rewatched it. And it's, like, the one Cronenberg movie that I'm like, I need to rewatch it. Because in my head, it's just this really... <laughs> I think it's kind of awesome. It's it, But I, I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, it's definitely on my list to rewatch. Uh, this is one of my favorite bits of news of the week, just because I know you'll be happy about it. Uh I know it's not happening, but Christopher Landon revealed the Happy Death Day 3 title. Did you hear it? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I'm hearing it for the first time right now. Okay. It's called Happy Death Day to Us. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I got that perfect non-reaction. Like, not super exciting. Uh, Happy Death Day to Us is definitely off to the side at the moment. I wish it wasn't. And I know that Jason Blum is passionate about it. Yeah, whatever the fuck that means i know i'm very passionate about it i know that jessica roth is really eager to do it as well i wrote the idea for the third movie some time ago i think we're all excited by it because it's a different it's different than the other two films and we're really just crossing our fingers and hoping that our fan base continues to grow which is something that i've really enjoyed watching over the years seeing more and more people discover the films so who knows there might be a time when it makes sense and hopefully it's sooner rather than later uh, all right so i'm hearing that i need to start buying some happy death day to you blu-rays and just sending them all around the country yes to, uh, to, Do to your a larger fan base. Yes. Um, so he tweeted that that all came from him tweeting like that Freaky exists in the same universe as Happy Death Day. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, great news for Jesse today. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you are completely nonplussed, which delights me. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, this is called Jesse's Corner. I reveal things that I don't give a shit about. <laughs> Jesse is gleeful about. Um, another, another release date that I don't think... I don't know if you mentioned this on the, the Antebellum episode. The infamous lost Antebellum episode. Um, <laughs> Candyman was... Oh, we did probably. Candyman was pulled from October and is now 2021 also. But listen to the Antebellum episode for more on that. And uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who did uh, movies I really enjoy. The Endless, uh, Resolution, and Spring, and a portion of VHS Viral. They have a new movie called uh, Synchronic, and it comes out uh, on October 23rd in drive-ins and hopefully on demand. It stars Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan as two New Orleans paramedics whose lives are ripped apart after encountering a series of horrific deaths linked to a designer drug with bizarre otherworldly effects. So it's, uh, what's that Netflix movie we just watched? Project Power? Yes. It's, it's also it's set in the same fucking town. Um, it's at the time of writing this, we personally wouldn't go to an indoor movie theater, so we can't encourage you to. If you can't see Synchronic in the way that is safe for yourself and everyone you come into contact with, it will be on VOD in a few months. But it will be exclusively in drive-ins and theaters on the 23rd. Drive-ins, that's cool. I wish, you know, we're, we're in the Northeast, so like, no, I, I want, I'm curious to see how long, not that there are any drive-ins around New York City that are real ones and not just pop-ups designed to 
pop-ups at a fucking construction site. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Show me a Blu-ray on a sheet or whatever. But, like, upstate, <laughs> you know, I, I go upstate fairly often because I have family there, and they have a couple drive-ins there. And I'm wondering how – usually they'll push into, like, around now. Like, this would usually be, like, the last weekend of the drive-in for the season. And I wonder how long they'll try to uh, push it because it gets fucking cold up there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if you – I guess, do, do they typically stay open in the winter? I mean, they usually don't because the thinking is this is a summer thing and you can go see a movie indoors in the in the winter. I think, and I do think some places with warmer climates, the drive-in at least will sometimes, you know, the season will at very least be longer. Like it'll open up earlier and, and go maybe, you know, through October and get some horror movies and stuff. Um, but yeah, those ones in the Northeast will like shut down like before the end of September, usually with some awesome blowout where they like do four movies <laughs> Uh, on each screen overnight, like overnight, essentially. Um, Hell and yeah. I, I, they have don't don't seem to be teeing that up at the upstate ones that I, I follow ridiculously closely. I'm like refreshing the Malta Drive-in page every week, being like, "What's going on? What's going on?" Uh, they're playing New Mutants and it's not Tenant because it's not allowed. I think um, something well, else. Well, like- Tenant just got the okay to open in L.A. Did it not get the okay to do it in New York when it got the okay did- to do the drive-ins? It, d- it oh, did. Uh, it did it as did. of last weekend. I know a lot oh, of people okay. in L.A. who finally went and were like, yeah, the movie's <laughs> bad. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I mean, my experience of Tenet, I guarantee you it would have been more of a two-star than a three-star movie if I saw it in a drive-in. I would have been so much less interested if it weren't on the like a fucking amazing sound system and a perfect screen, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, you know what? So what they're showing right now is uh, my upstate driving is, and I think th- this weekend also is uh, Broken Hearts Gallery with New Mutants. That's another another theatrical exclusive, uh, the Broken Hearts Gallery, which is a romantic comedy with uh, one of the gals from Blockers. Um, which I would I would this that's a double feature. I- I would absolutely be hitting up if I lived upstate, and maybe the drive-in will just somehow stay open into the wintry. Uh, I guess you October, just stay November. in your car. It's like no different than it would be yeah. otherwise. Yeah, I would usually. I used to watch them outside with my friends when I was going as a kid. So like that would be you know prohibitive. But yeah, most people stay in their cars now with the pandemic. So it might not be the worst. Um, anyway, that, I I I, I like that the the filmmakers for Synchronic noted that they were like liked the idea of seeing it like during the spooky season and you're at, at the drive-in, which I would, yeah, I would, I would love to do like a Halloween, a Halloween time, you know, in, in place of Six Flags Fright Fest, <laughs> the, the drive-in Fright Fest with whatever new horror movies are coming out. That would be fun. Absolutely. Uh, and with spooky season in, in conversation, let's, let's shift right into Paul Schrader's uh, there's a lot of funny titles for this one before it got Dominion, Pequel of the Exorcist. Uh, the first screening, it just said The Exorcist 4, like IV, with like the Roman numeral. Um, it, it was at one point just called Paul Schrader's like unseen Exorcist prequel or something, which, <laughs> um, which is kind of, you know, you can't really call something that once you start seeing it, which is probably why they changed it. Um <laughs> And now it's called Dominion Prequel of the Exorcist. It hilariously got the most base, like, worst minuscule, only in a few art theaters, limited release on the same day as, you guessed it, Jesse, Revenge of the Sith. Yes! (laughs) Yeah, it got buried by Revenge of the Sith. It was eventually on DVD. It basically premiered at a festival and got acclaim, so much so 
that um, it ended up getting that actual limited theatrical release and DVD release and it saw the light of day. But Schrader makes no bones about the fact that like, if it weren't for the fact that Morgan Creek fucked him over so bad and hired Rennie Harlan and they made that bad movie, he would have never gotten to release this movie the way he wanted to. So I read this really great interview with him where he basically said, if I were, you know, he was asked if he would do it all again. He was like, no, I wouldn't. But, and then he went into that whole thing I just said, basically, where it's like, if I hadn't, if they hadn't done it the way they did, and they basically just took my movie and butchered it, which is what I thought they were going to do, I would have walked away, never talked about it, never seen it, and like, you know, would have condemned it. But now, like, he's like, Morgan Creek is famous for taking movies away from their directors, and I actually got a final cut on one. And it took like all this horrible shit to happen, but his movie exists and you can see it, and we did see it, and I own it on DVD now with the great Paul Schrader commentary, and uh, I'll let Jesse talk on it first. Jesse, what did you think of Dominion Prequel of the Exorcist uh, in in context of the franchise, in context of the Exorcist the beginning? Just just go off, man. Yeah, go off, as they say. What's well, funny to see the word prequel in an actual movie title, like on screen. <laughs> I feel like that never happens. Yeah. I can't think of another movie that says pre. There's a couple that say sequel, usually as a joke, but and there's one that says squeakquel, mm. but no prequels. Uh, anyway, so it's, you know, I think it speaks to the, like, uh, perhaps the trepidation about the idea of a prequel, even though someone is obviously convinced that they are huge, huge money because um, they keep making them. And this, I would say this movie doesn't exactly get away from the kind of prequelness of like, but why though? You know, like, yes. like, like we talked about the last episode where, or the last Exorcist episode where we um, discussed just like, why do you need to make a movie to, to fill in like an evocative line from the, from the first Exorcist? But if you're going to make a prequel to The Exorcist, uh, this one, compared to the Reddy Harlan version, it makes a pretty good shot at it. And it's very interesting watching this after the Reddy Harlan one. I, I left this one feeling like I was sort of both too harsh on some ideas in the in the in the Reddy Harlan one because they were ideas from this movie that actually ended up being good, and also too easy on the Reddy Harlan one because I sort of been, you know half enjoyed it as kind of dumb schlock, and now again was watching this this earlier version where it has a lot of the same story beats. Uh, oh, I fucking hate saying beats for stories. Please excuse me. <laughs> you forget that ever happened. Uh, but we're editing that story. out in post. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> yeah, no screen, no screenwriting terms. Um, <laughs> ankle that entirely. Uh, so, the, watching the Schrader version second is a, is a strange experience because you were watching really, really what the intended version is. Which I guess anytime you're watching a director's cut, you're doing that. But this is really like the two movies are basically remakes of each other. I mean, it's not a director's cut. It's a like we remade this movie immediately <laughs> with Rennie Harlan. Um, and so I would say you know, for about an hour, right, it's like pretty close story-wise with a few major details change. And then the, I would say like the second hour it diverges more from what they're going for in, in the two different versions. And yeah, so there were things that I, and you can hear me in a couple episodes ago, uh, dismissed as horrible ideas in the Harlan one. It turns out, and this is kind of a naive observation to to land on. It's all in the execution, uh, right from the beginning. Like the um, what in the Harlan version is uh, 
parceled out backstory about uh, Father Baron's origins in the, you know, being a priest during World War II and, and his experiences with the Holocaust. Um, in the movie, it's just like, I was like, this is exploitative bullshit. Like, it's stupid. It's just like, it's not, it's not scary. It's not effective. And it's, it just like dredges up Holocaust stuff for the, for some cheap, like, backstory. And in the straighter version, it opens with that right out front, which really surprised me. That seemed like such like a schlocky add-on or something. The straighter version opens with that Holocaust stuff immediately, and it's a sequence that's really compelling and It's so strong. It's such a strong <laughs> opening. It's probably it the best part of the movie. movie. And I was like, oh, okay, this actually works uh, if you let it if you let it breathe, it would do what Schrader want, apparently wanted to do with it in the first place. And I'd be fascinated to see how much of this was, and maybe you know more about this, about, you know, how much was Schrader's input in, like, what basically what the screenplay for this movie looked like, because now you've seen two different movies essentially filmed from the same screenplay. And they're very different, despite having pretty similar storylines. So I'd be very curious, like, what Schrader brought into it and what if he changed things from the script. He... Uh, presumably- yeah. yeah, he basically says he was hired as a director, not a writer. So he didn't do like a pass on the script in terms of like uh-huh. rewriting it. But he says what is the final version of this movie that ended up being the one we saw is like 90% like what the script was when he agreed to do it. Right, right. Uh, so that's even, even stranger to me, too. I think Ebert brought this up in his review uh, contemporaneously when... Uh, you know, presumably the studio signed off, Morgan Creek signed off on this screenplay. <laughs> they did. And that's why Schrader always refers to it in a very specific way. Um, buyer's remorse. He specifically says they have buyer's remorse. He says that when they went out and bought the Lexus, they bought the Lexus. It was uh, only once they got home that they kicked themselves and said, I should have bought the Hummer. I wanted a Hummer all along. Then they go back and buy a Hummer. That's why there was no great deal of argument between me and uh, Morgan Creek, because uh, he was moving past me. He was moving on to another film. He was head to the Hummer dealership, and there wasn't a whole lot to talk to me about because I was busy trying to sell him the Lexus. <laughs> it's such, yeah, it's such a, because there, you know, there. I would say there are limitations in this movie, even in the Schrader version. Like, it's not as good a movie as the best Schrader movies that I've seen. I haven't seen all of his movies, but it's not as good a movie as Blue Collar or Forced Reformed or, the, or, the, or Cat People, even. I would say it's not as good as the Cat People remake. It does have a little bit of that, like, like I said, the, okay, this is a, pre- someone was assigned to write a prequel and fill in some backstory that didn't really need to be filled in. But within that kind of assignment, within those lines, uh, it turns out it's really pretty pretty good. I mean, it's I, I probably didn't enjoy it as much as Exorcist Three, but it feels less the Schrader version because it's not compromised. Feels less compromised than Exorcist Three, and it's what I found really strange about this movie is that given that they reshot the whole thing with Randy Harlan and made a new movie, I assume this would be extremely like slow, reflective, perhaps a bit obtuse, you know, internal. No, it's and probably scarier. It's yeah, it's and it's it's not even <laughs> it's not even scarier in that like oh well if you're sophisticated enough to appreciate a slow burn it's I mean like I think just like the scary the kind of traditional scary parts yes. are good and like and when better. he puts the 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 cross on Cheche's head and he like comes to life for the first time that's scary yeah, when it's he, scary. <laughs> when he's uh, like starts floating at the end is this like androgynous demon person and he like kicks Francis and Francis is moving at a different speed than everybody else like there's all this really cool shit in there and yeah, it's it is it, scary it works as a horror movie and it's 
what's it's, it's like also I honestly found this movie easy. I don't know if it was just because I found it more engaging and therefore keyed into it easier, but I found it easier to follow than Rennie Harlan's version. Like it's so I easier to follow because he didn't spend. I mean, the Rennie Harlan version takes the the like powerful. Um, what do you call it? Like, uh, the powerful allegory that's like the crux of the movie that's at the very beginning of the, the, of Dominion and he cuts it up to shit and, and like teases it throughout and you don't get the reveal till like an hour in and by that time it's dissipated. You don't feel yeah. anything. You don't and you, he doesn't, he leaves out weird, he weirdly elides details that make that sequence make more, make more sense. And Way just... more sense. Like that whole sequence in the opening is like one of the most compelling uh, like Holocaust sequences I've ever seen, maybe. Like maybe I'm just fluffing this movie because uh, <laughs> I watched it twice in the past week and I thought it was really good. And probably, I guess Exorcist Three would be the asterisk. This is this is maybe the best Exorcist sequel. Like this yeah, and the Exorcist Three are, are are the are up there. Yeah, it's certainly in the conversation. So it's so funny to me that they treated this as this like you know, like you said that they like Schrader says they had this buyer's remorse over what is like a perfectly respectable but not inaccessible like i think i think a horror like a regular like, quote of it sounds kind of sending but like you know the the regular horror fan who just like want, is like oh cool another exorcist movie sweet i want to see that like not the paul schrader fan i mean though you know which is yeah. a little more of a specialized thing i think the horror fan out there would probably enjoy this movie i'm because i'm both i like paul schrader and i like horror shit and I, you know, I enjoy slow burn stuff, and I also enjoy just like you know, exploitationy, like you know, upfront, like straightforward horror movies. And this works as one. I think you know, maybe it's 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 a little more thoughtful than than certain movies. So is The Exorcist. So it's like a weird, <laughs> it's just a weird uh, idea to me that they saw this movie and were like, oh god, no, this 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 doesn't work at all. Uh, it, I even I was you know it's surprisingly strong in Exorcist bona fides in terms of having an exorcism. I know with the other two sequels, two in a row, they basically commissioned a sequel. And then we're like, oh shit, this doesn't have enough like stupid exorcism bullshit in it and had to go back and add that. And this one, it seems like they did have the stupid exorcism bullshit and it's like a pretty good exorcism scene. Yes. It's like a solid... <laughs> yes, and this movie is the only one that seems to, even if not by like actual passing references to the other ones, it seems to embody elements of every sequel in a little, in, like in yeah, some way. Like this sure. movie has Borman exorcist to the heretic stuff in it for sure and it has stuff that i would say is like blatty-esque from the third one it just has (laughs) bits and pieces of all of them including the captain howdy face again from the original and the way schrader does that fucking expressionistic experimental dream sequence with god i always talk about how much i hate dream sequences but if one person can make (laughs) me like them it's paul schrader because he he deliberately shot this movie because it's set in like the 40s. He goes, I wanted to make it as if it were in the 40s and I wanted the movie to look and feel and um, sound as if like you could like you could pick up this movie, watch it and think it was made in the 40s. And like, you know, I think for the most part, it pulls that off except for the bad CGI, which Schrader will admit is bad. Yeah, I, that seemed like it must have been like the movie that, that probably wasn't finished until later. And that was, you know, whatever. Not yeah, totally. It's worse. It's worse than the effects in the. That's the one area where the Harlan movie, uh, by default, wins. Is that the uh, the the special effects are sl- the janky one, special effects are slightly less janky in Harlan's version. There's one thing that Schrader stole from Harlan. Can you do you know what it is? No, I don't. It's the shot of the maggot-filled baby. 
Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so basically what he said was, you know, we didn't have the opportunity to shoot all that special effects and gore stuff, so when we could take it from Harlan's, we would. So we took that yeah. sequence. And I will read portions of this really great review with him. And I watched the movie with commentary. The commentary has a lot of like technical stuff about cameras and setting up locations and stuff. But um, yeah, my I'm just looking at my notes. I'm just like, good Lord. Basically what you said, and that just watching this movie made me realize how badly Harlan butchered this movie and Morgan Creek butchered this movie and how, and like, it was just for just like such a misguided effort because as you said, like, yeah, the way the way they manifested it in the beginning is to be like, well, this has to be more like the original. So they literally just had like Linda Blair cosplay, and it's yeah. so stupid and bad and has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Um, and yeah, so it's so funny to me that they they thought that this movie needed that because the the Dominion as is has all the stuff you'd want from an, from a movie that's like. From the get go, the setup was no pea soup, no spinning heads. This is a prequel to The Exorcist that is about the battle of good and evil through time and Marin's first encounter with it. Like it, it, as you said, I think you said it like he nailed the assignment. Like the assignment was to make a prequel, the exorcist Schrader had a good script that wasn't his. And he's like, great, I'll make this. And he did a great job. He nailed the assignment and Morgan Creek was not happy with it. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of the cliff notes version uh, I'll, we should go through the plot real quick and then maybe I'll read from the interview because it's just so interesting. But anyway, so the movie opens in 1944. Yes. Yeah, opens in Holland, 1944. Uh, a German army, a Nazi SS lieutenant has been like, uh, some Nazi person has been killed. So this SS lieutenant forces Marin, the parish priest of this small village in occupied Holland, to participate in arbitrary executions in retaliation for the murder of a German trooper. Basically, doesn't he basically say, um, give me the person who did this. He says, no one here did this. And they said, give me the person anyway. And he said, no. And then he says, well, now because you're stalling, it has to give me 10 people. Yeah. Well, that's, that's something I'm pretty sure I have to, I didn't want to go back and find out. And, but the Harlan version, I'm pretty sure leaves out the reasoning or, or it just goes by so fast it doesn't register. The reasoning and the whole reason he's asking the, the, the priest for this in the first place, which I guess you could have intuited, but I didn't really because, the, it, like you said, they, they cut it up so bad in, in the Harlan one. He, as the priest, he expects he knows from confession who killed the Nazi. Great fucking detail uh, that explains that's, yeah, that's the a, entire that's scene. A detail. <laughs> it's not in the other movie, for sure not. Yeah. So then when he, you, you, and you don't know if he, you don't really know if he's uh, refusing to break the bond of, of sacrament, uh, the, the sacramental bond, or uh, the sacrament of confession, rather, or if he sincerely does not know. Because it does seem like kind of a leap <laughs> that, that like they definitely would have immediately confessed the murder to him. But, you know, it's, that, that's such an interesting like dilemma that that puts it in, him in. And then, yes, the Nazi says, okay, well, if you're not going to tell me and you're going to insist all these people are innocent of murder, uh, then I'm just going to kill ten people and you have to choose them. And if you don't choose ten people, I will just kill everybody. And he, you know, the, the Marin does say, just shoot me, make, take me instead. And the, the Nazi refuses. So he does choose 10 people to be killed in this. After he chooses, he does choose the 10 very reluctantly after I think he just kills a boy or like a, a woman. I don't remember if it's yeah, like a woman, child. Yeah, that's the, the, the Harlan one, classy as, as it is, uh, adds some child murder into it. Just <laughs> yeah, to that's it. right. There's like, <laughs> oh, it's so fucked up. 
Yeah, Harlan really butchers the sequence to be like, I think he wanted it to be more brutal, but it's so much more brutal when you have the proper context. Yes. And it's like done with, uh, by a storyteller. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I think the sequence is fantastic. And then uh, it cuts to a few years later and you you get the like, <laughs> we get the like impression that he's, you know, he's an archaeologist now in this, in Dorati, a remote region, the Turkana region of British Kenya. He's excavating a church built around the 5th uh, century, long before Christianity had reached the region. All stuff that's in the Harlan movie. But um, you really get why his faith has been shattered. You get why that incident in the beginning had an effect on him. Whereas yeah. in the Harlan, it's just like, enter Harrison Ford. Yeah. <laughs> Very, even more grim-faced Harrison Ford. And someone in the first of many recastings, or, or rather original castings... The, the the priest from the Vatican who is sent to kind of supervise him and make sure this this dig goes okay is played by Gabriel Mann, who I know mostly as the wishy-washy love interest from Josie and the Pussycats. Yep, from that's where I know him from, too. <laughs> and, I've never, and he's good like, in this. I mean, like, uh, besides finding him, like, baseline cute and likable in Josie and the Pussycats, a very cute and likable movie, um, I've never really had much use for this dude. I have to say, and like so when he when he showed up here, I was like, oh yeah, of course you recast him. He's like the most recastable actor in the world. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, his father Francis really popped a lot more for me than the sort of slightly more sophisticated and less young seeming uh, priest in Harlan's version. I thought this is like the, I mean, it's I guess a, a small competition, but Gabriel Mann is it's a, definitely the best performance of his I've seen. <laughs> Hundred percent. He was great. Considering I've seen him in, a, yeah. in only other, one other movie uh, that I can yeah. think of, it's not it's not the best praise, but I, I do mean it as such. He's very good in this. Yeah. Um. So it's 1947. Him, uh, Marin, Father Francis, as you mentioned, and now the third person is uh, Major Granville, also recast. Yes, I think so. Uh, the British military officer overseeing the dig. Yeah, isn't he the guy with like boils on his face in the other one? Yeah, I think so. Um, so basically, making their way to Dorati with Chuma, uh, Marin's translator and guide. Marin introduces Father Francis to Rachel, a doctor who spent time in a concentration camp and is haunted by her experience there. And Emekwai, uh, an enthusiastic convert uh, who provides accommodation for the two men. So basically, the characters are different here. Can you explain the difference between Rachel and the other Rachel and the difference between Emekwai and I forget his analog in the other one. Uh, Rachel and Rachel, I mean, I really just, like, felt like the, uh, like, you know, the her background's basically the same, right? Like, it Yeah, seems they like just she was kind just... of gave her, it seems that they just gave her and Marin, like, more, like, a romantic, a typical romantic subplot that wasn't necessary in the beginning version. Yeah, yeah, this one, she's a little more, she seems like both more, a stronger kind of personality in the movie, and also less open to Father Marin's, not advances, because he's not really making advances, but she seems a little more skittish towards him, at the same time feels a little more dominant in the narrative. Um, and yeah, just like, I, the the other actress is not doing a bad job in, in the Harlan version, but she's, um, she's like a former Bond girl, and it kind of like, oh, okay, that's why she was recast as someone who's, like, a little more, like, traditionally love-interesty. Um, yeah, yeah Clarabella's trip- Rachel just seems to me, felt like her own, her own subplot felt like it had its, kind of its own thing in this. The only other thing I know her from is uh, AI. Oh, okay. I didn't even, didn't even connect that she was from that. I love that movie. 
Yeah, she's great. Um, so Emma Kwai is basically this local guy who's like down with the cause to be taught um, Christianity. And like his sons are the first yeah. two um, students of Father Francis who is there trying to, you know, spread the gospel and um, spread Christianity to this region, which is all very important uh, with what Schrader's laying down here. Um, so basically it's the same stuff that's in the beginning in that they tore the, the church that's, you know, they're, they're digging up and it's in perfect condition, although it seems it was deliberately buried immediately after its construction. Um, and then on the site, this is, this is where like the big, huge differences start. Marin meets a shy, physically deformed young boy named Cheche. He's shunned and mistreated by the locals for fear that he is cursed. He's got like a no leg, like a really tiny leg and a bunk leg. Uh, although dissuaded by Chuma, Marin attempts to make contact with Cheche, finally managing to bring the boy to Rachel for medical treatment. So basically, um, a big part of this movie is them treating this deformed boy, physically deformed guy named Cheche. And then instead of like a traditional move, exorcism movie where a character gets possessed by the devil and get and they and they deteriorate and get worse, this movie's what Trader calls a brilliant conceit is that Cheche, this boy that's physically deformed, when possession and devil stuff starts happening, this boy starts getting better. And yes. his body starts healing. And that's really interesting. Um, yeah. uh, so once the door is uncovered to the church, Marin, uh, Francis, and Truma go inside. They note the same things in the, in the beginning, which is that it's built in a way to restrain something beneath it. A hidden passageway leads them to a crypt containing a demonic idol, an ancient sanctuary where human sacrifice was performed. Marion deduces the church was built not as a place of worship, but to seal this underground temple in. On their way back, they find the corpses of hyenas who, appear, who have appeared out of season being eaten by a herd of cattle. The Turkana elders thinking the church's evil demand Marin stop digging. Um, Francis contacts uh, Granville, Major Granville, to send a detachment to guard the dig from potential robbers despite Marin's objections. Two British soldiers attempting to, uh, basically they send, you know, guards to guard the dig, but these two British soldiers are in there and they see these precious jewels and they decide to steal them. And then we cut to the next day, they're found dead, one's headless and the other one's crucified upside down on the altar. Yeah. And despite the Christian symbolism used in the murders and the testimony of a local named Jomo, a Turkana warrior who had long been keeping a wary eye on the site, that the two men, he witnessed it. He saw that the two men were affected by a strange madness that caused them to kill each other. But the uh, British Major Granville, blaming the locals, goes to, goes to town in a fit of rage, demanding the culprits be given up, shoots a young woman in cold blood in the head when the locals protest, and the town is then placed under military surveillance. So this is all really interesting stuff about, like, colonialism and uh, people fucking with the locals and Christianity being spread against people's will. And, like, all that stuff comes across fine here. Like, it doesn't... I just don't see why they were so afraid of this movie. No, and one that, that backstory that they hang on to with Marin and the, and the Holocaust, they'd, like echo much more clearly in this like really really obviously almost like over obviously where the british soldiers are demanding to know from the locals who did this who did this in like and that's why he kind of pops off and shoots that woman is because they're not they're not no one's confessing to anything and marin is sort of suddenly finds himself placed in a similar position as he was in the war though he's sort of nominally on this at the side of the british soldiers in this case which is even worse for him so like that 
parallel, though it, again, it's not exactly subtle. Is it's it's so, good writing. It's good. Yeah, it's it, well handled. And it gives it gives more reason for the, again, like it, it makes the Hawkeye stuff at the beginning less of a cheap backstory, like to to add fake gravitas. And it's like, oh, okay, that's why that's there. That's that has to. That's like, you know, that's what his character's kind of dilemma and and problem with his faith is. So like, yeah, it makes a way way more sense here. Uh, so then, determined to stop Christian evil from spreading, Jomo breaks into the mission school where Francis is teaching those two sons of Emigwai. And before he's shot on the spot by British soldiers, he bitterly questions if this is how God rewards those who keep the faith in him. And he fucking kills the two kids. Yeah. And Francis has a disturbing realization that Cheche's unusual recovery is not caused by God as he had thought. Fearing for Cheche's soul, he considers baptizing him. The boy accepts the, uh, the the proposal to be baptized on the condition that it be held at the church. Oh, man, that's such a good low-key creepy moment, too. <laughs> He's like, poor stupid Father Francis. The, the, the kid is like, sure, sure, baptizing, baptizing me sounds good. Well, why don't we do it in the, uh, the demon church? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really... And, like, the way that the... There's, like, the devil whispering in Francis's ear. There's, like, yeah. a bunch of... like. The way Trader described in the commentary, like the devil's manifesting himself all over the place. Like we see the guilt-ridden and despairing Granville kill himself. Um, the Turkana elders via Chuma demand that the church be reburied, and Francis, who they hold responsible for the spread of Christian evil and the arrival of the British troops, uh, they demand that Francis and Cheche be handed over to them and to be killed. But when their demands are turned down, war between the two sides becomes inevitable. Francis, assisted by the doctor Rachel, begins to baptize Cheche at the church. As they do so, however, the demon-controlling Cheche assaults them. Realizing an exorcism is in order, Francis leaves quickly to fetch his copy of the Roman ritual in a scene that is about the same impact, but much less, like, prequely than the one in yeah. in <laughs> the beginning, where it's like, let me yeah. go get my, look at the camera, Roman rituals. <laughs> um, <laughs> the demon removes Cheche's deformities and transforms him into a hairless, androgynous, perfect being, an earthquake erupts and seals powder, if you will. He looks like Sorry. powder. Yeah. <laughs> um, an earthquake erupts and seals off the entrance to their church. The sergeant major, Granville's second in command, who assumes control of the troops after his death, postpones Marin's request to search to clear the entrance. He's basically saying, "We'll do it tomorrow. We're going to wait for daybreak. It's not worth us going in there now, even though people are trapped." Uh, the next morning, Marin and the British find Francis tied to a tree, naked, shot with arrows, but still clinging to life. Francis taken to the hospital to be looked after by Emmaquai's wife. After recovering, Francis reveals to Marin that Cheche is possessed and begs him to perform an exorcism. Another earthquake shifts the rocks, unblocking the entrance just enough to allow Marin to go inside. At the underground temple, Marin finds Rachel, who runs away under a trance, and the possessed Cheche. Marin rushes back to the infirmary to wear Francis' vestments and goes back to the church to begin the exorcism. The, de the demon offers Marin a chance to rewrite his path. This is really interesting. At which Marin, in a hallucination, finds himself back in 1944 Holland. When he refuses to cooperate, Kessel and Sten has Marin and all the villagers killed for his defiance. So it's like an alternate history version of that sequence yeah. we see play out. Uh, when Marin comes back to his senses, the demon mocks the futility of his attempt to change what happened. As Marin recommences the exorcism, a supernatural aurora appears in the sky. The entranced Rachel attempts to kill herself. Uh, Emmaquai violently beats his wife in the Turkana charge to battle. Despite the evil spirit's resistance, the exorcism succeeds. So that whole sequence with like the supernatural aurora lights and stuff is supposed to show that evil is like coming over to the town. Yeah. And everyone is kind of possessed by it. 
Despite that resistance to exorcism succeeds, Cheche regresses to his former condition as the demon leaves his body and enters that of a hyena. With the demon driven out of Dorati, life returns to normal and the British attachment leave. One of the local elders, however, warns that the demon will pursue Marin, bidding farewell to Rachel and Cheche, now serving as Rachel's assistant at the infirmary. Marin, who has regained his faith as an active priest once more, leaves for Rome, and you know, he will eventually find Reagan in Georgetown in 2020. To become... The Exorcist. Right. And the last shot, so many times um, Trader references John Wayne on the commentary. But that last shot, which is the fucking doorframe shot, (laughs) that's him walking away with his uh, holding his uh, rosary like a fucking pistol. That's so John Wayne. (laughs) Did I do a good job of summarizing it? Did Wikipedia do a good job of summarizing it? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, yeah. That's... That's it, and it's just interesting, yeah, it's just so interesting how the, it really does follow pretty closely what's going on in the beginning uh, for about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, and the big difference is the the deformed boy who be, sort of becomes the vessel for the demon rather than the sort of, like, who's the demon? Is it the kid? Is it the is it Rachel? That happens in, in Harlan's version. I will say, like, I get, the one way where I can kind of get why maybe people would be unsatisfied, executives or whatever, being unsatisfied with this version, is that there are a number of kills or maimings that occur off screen. Um, and that's obviously not a problem if you like like movies and understand why things are sometimes allotted that way. But I get, maybe there was a thought at Morgan Creek that like, oh, t- twice at least they cut away before like the scary thing happens. Um, to me, it's much more scary and mysterious that you're still getting like the, the creepiness of, you know, this, these uh, soldiers who were beheaded and, uh, placed upside down on the cross, whatever, uh, or, or what happens with Father Francis is still creepy. It's almost creepier not seeing the actual process and, and knowing that something did this and you don't know what. Like, that's kind of part of the whole engine of the movie is that no one has had a clear, this is definitely what happened, kind of eyewitness shot, which allows them to sort of blame different different people. Um, but I could see maybe that's the one place where, like, okay, maybe that's not that traditional in terms of horror movie, but the rest of this stuff is really pretty, like, it's just like a, yeah, like you said, well-written, well-performed, like, solid, creepy movie um, that got tagged as if it's this, like, obtuse art house, like, meandering or something. Yeah, it's like a pretty, it, it's, I don't see a lot of people being upset with this movie, like, once you yeah. actually get down and watch it. Um, I took a lot of notes during his commentary, so I'm just going to kind of read through them and see what comes up. Um, he was approached about this movie in 2001. John Frankenheimer is going to do it with Liam Neeson. Um, but that, of course, didn't happen because Frankenheimer dropped out and then died like a month later. Um, he went off to Morocco and Rome in the winter of 2001 and the th- spring of 2002, shot about five weeks in each country. All the exterior stuff uh, was shot in Morocco and the interior stuff was shot in Rome. Oh, this is something that was weird that he mentioned in an interview. Um, he mentioned that uh stock footage that's right so harlan on the commentary kept claiming that like all these things were stock footage but it's not true paul schrader shot all that stuff and this is what he had to say about that 
Uh, Rennie Harlan is smart enough to know that's not true and that it wasn't stock footage. <laughs> Obviously, he was under instructions on that commentary not to acknowledge there was another film. And so he gets stuck because he can't really talk about the design of the church because it's the same church or the design of the village because it's the same village. But once he gets to a set, he actually built like the tent that he can talk about. He must have been under instructions never to say this is the church that was in the earlier film. In fact, the man who designed the church, the village, the dig site, was a man named John Gaysmark. He was not brought back for Harlan's film. Also, he was not credited. Um, he says he's never spoken with Harlan. There wouldn't be much to talk about. I mean, theoretically, somewhere down the road in a few months, it'd be interesting to see if he'd do a one-on-one, but I don't know why he would. <laughs> um, I'll read more from that interview shortly. Um, this is mo- back to the commentary. Uh, Petrator says one of the inherent problems with the script that he directed uh, is that as a horror film, it lay its very premise... Uh, it, uh, horror films lay in its very premise and the originality of the premise. The feeling was... Even before we came involved, you had to get away from the freaking movie because it's such a classic. And one of the ways to do that was to switch the possessed person from a girl to a boy, but more importantly, to switch the very nature of possession. He's afflicted. He's an outcast. As the possession takes hold, he gets better, and everyone else becomes more and more insane. An ingenious twist on the formula that really separates from the freaking film and makes it its own. Uh, when you have a young person getting better, better, though, you've essentially taken the motor out of the horror vehicle. This is kind of what you were talking about, though. Uh, because you know... Horror is based on an innocent tormented while the clock runs. Now we have an innocent getting better. Try with gimmicks and the sound effects all you want, but it's not a very effective horror mechanism. And he said, Schrader said, that's fine with me. I had in mind a slightly different kind of film, more about Marin's journey than a horror vehicle. Um, He says he met Stellan Sarsgaard at Telluride when he was being honored there. They hit it off. He thinks the world of him as an actor. He's a planet and generous human being. A perfect fit, not only because he's Swedish and kind of cool to have the best current Swedish actor playing the best Swedish actor of his father's generation and Max von Sydow. He really thought that was cool. Um, he likes the introspective quality that of his performance. He tends to go inside when cornered as an actor. He thought that was very good for Father Marin. Um, he says he does have big melodrama and he naturally gravitates towards those areas. Gabriel Mann, this is interesting. He was cast by John Frankenheimer. Oh. Uh, oh. Terrific actor. Works off Stellan very well. Granville, like many of the actors, was cast out of London because they needed British actors. Uh, no matter how many films you make as a director, you always find yourself having some conversations with cinematographers. They'll always say to you, you shouldn't be the person, uh, shouldn't the person stand here and stand there? And then, of course, you come and shoot it and it looks way better the way they said. Uh, the cinematographer will never say to you, it'll look better if you shoot it this way. He will just imply, shouldn't that person walk across the room this way? Uh, <laughs> he basically said, he talked on this commentary he kept stopping to talk about how much he loved working with Vittorio Serraro, this legendary cinematographer, and what that was like, and how he shoots. And it's crazy the way Vittorio shoots. Um, and apparently, the beginning... So the beginning was shot in 2 to 1 ratio, not 2.135. And they cropped it. And they never let Vittorio color corrector do anything in post, even on, on both versions. So ah. that's something else that Schrader's mad about um but he really has a lot of only has nice things to say about Vittorio and he says he learns so much from him and like it's really cool to hear him talk about that um he said what was lacking when he left the production was a soundtrack they had done 80 percent digital effects and he got the money to finish those but he had no music just a temp score so Angelo Badalamenti <laughs> the legendary composer who's did like you know Twin Peaks Laura's theme and whatnot as a favor to Schrader put together about 15 minutes of new music for this movie that was basically the theme you heard throughout the movie and the theme we'll hear later and the theme you heard at the beginning of this podcast, uh, which totally sounds like a bad Lamenti theme. It sounds straight out of Twin Peaks. I love it. Big and beautiful. 
Um, it allowed the movie to have a big unifying theme. And then he went to a heavy metal group that his son was a fan of called Dog Fashion Disco, his 15-year-old son at the time. And he got this band. He, he basically helped this band get a record deal because his son was a fan and he, he knows people in the industry or whatever. So they basically said to him, you know, we'll do whatever you want. And he, this is when he cashed that check. He was like, well, if you guys want to do the score for the Exorcist movie I'm making, you can do it. So the last 20 minutes is is dog fashion disco score which is like metal music almost it's kind of it's really i thought it was really cool and i like the yeah. way that i love the the closing credit score which we'll hear at the end of the podcast here so this score is a patchwork quilt of various sources mixed and playing off against each other and it works pretty well even he said even straighter said that <laughs> um all these sets were built 45 minutes outside of marrakesh given today's standards there's not much cgi in this movie everything was built the town of Devraki is a Western outpost. They built that entire town. He took photos in Kenya, gave them to production designer, and then they would build it. Uh, they wanted to feel like they were on the edge of civilization. The town had a mixture of native huts, military huts, and a few buildings. Oh, the, the guy who plays Cheche is a Filipino-American from Texas who is a pop star. Uh, Morgan Creek and Frankenheimer did quite an extensive talent search before they found him. He's a huge, successful disco singer in France. And since they were filming in Morocco, he was constantly being recognized by the French schoolgirls on vacation. Um, and he doesn't look anything like he does as Cheche, nor as the demon. He looks like neither of them. He was in prosthetics and makeup the whole time. His true appearance is never in the movie. Just this random guy's introduction oh. to film. And I don't know if he's done movies since. I think he's done, like, foreign films. But this is, like, his only American movie. Uh, so the nurse, as I mentioned, was an AI... Hard to cast because he didn't want a traditional airhead beauty, and there's always pressure to cast those people. Kind of a dig on the fucking Rennie Harlan casting, I think. Um, <laughs> a nice period feel to this actress. Didn't feel like a 2000s era's actress. Um, he talks about that famous Salvador Dali Hitchcock dream sequence. That's what he used to make that one that I really like so much. The clock and the man with the bandaged face. Um, took the white face figure from the Friedkin film that was a subliminal fashion. Now he used it as the face of the demon here. Um, he talks a lot of, I already mentioned that cinematographer, how he manipulates the light and the F-stops and all that stuff. He would change the exposures as the shot was going. If there was two cameras, he'd have two F-stops and controllers in his hand. Schroeder just said he never worked this way before, and it was like a thrill to work with Vittorio in that way. Every single location they went to, they had to set up Vittorio's little tent unit, and it was just a thrill. Uh, let's see. Oh, their intrepid team here has gone to the church where they found and buried. Uh, there's this really cool sequence of all those murals in the church. Those were all constructed and built by them. Uh, a mixture of traditional mosaics, very gory battle scenes. Um, Straight is very proud of all that stuff. Then the movie, ha and the movie, the infestation happens. They discover sarcophagus. Blah blah blah. Uh. Schrader says the scene with the hyenas didn't work so well. He left it in primarily to help us out with this character, the local chief, to give him a chance to establish himself as a character. The scene was sounded so horrific on paper, we just weren't able to find uh, the way to give it a visual impact that had in the script. That's what he was talking about, the livestock eating the hyenas. Uh -huh. It looked really shitty. <laughs> um, <laughs> the guy who designed their churches and mosaics and stuff... Uh, He's from London, and the next gig he did was Russell Crowe's wedding. He built the, the chapel. <laughs> um, these mosaics were all fabulous and original. The scene explains the notion of Lucifer as the god of light, the fallen angel, which is a different kind of uh, Satan myth than the one we're using. So the figure there, 
that we're using is of Lucifer, and it prefigures the form that the demon will ultimately take in the movie as he becomes perfected. Um, there's that sequence with the stillbirth of the guy's wife, cross-cut with the Cheche operation. Um, blah, blah, blah. I learned a lot from Vittorio that day. Uh, he basically talks about sequences in which Vittorio would take over and start blocking the actors and just like start directing, and he would be like thrilled. And it said it worked really well. Um, he wanted the movie to be faithful, as I mentioned, to 1940s composition and lighting of that period. Uh, Schrader likes and is very proud of the long exposition scene, 56 minutes in, where it's uh, Father Francis having a deep conversation about good and evil. It's like five pages of dialogue. He kept that scene alive through interesting camera angles. Uh, great pleasures and great challenges of directing is directing good dialogue. He much rather direct dialogue than action. Having a good scene with two actors who are good and figuring out how to do with that visually, that's the most pleasurable part of directing for him. I loved hearing that. Just give me two angry actors in a kitchen and I'm happy, <laughs> is what he says. Um, they used a hydraulic lift to make Cheche rise creepily from the bed. Uh, Schrader talks about just walking over to the set of Passion of the Christ because they were filming simultaneously. And he would talk to Mel at the time. And he's just really interesting that this, at this studio was both the devil and Christ right across from each other. <laughs> he said Mel was complaining about people getting getting on his case about Passion of the Christ at the time. And Schrader was like to him, you know, no matter what you do, it's just the nature of the subject matter. People are going to be upset. He's like, he's not a very sympathetic ear considering Mel Gibson fucking hated The Last Temptation of Christ and like spoke <laughs> out against it and stuff. Um <laughs> Francis has a very, very bad idea to baptize Cheche, says Schrader. Quite clear this will be no good. Oh, he said they were under considerable pressure to get out of Morocco from the studio. There was a war coming and everyone knew it. It was very tense. And that's why a couple scenes they had to reshoot uh, on a set in Rome. But he said, if I had my way, we would have never left. It sounds very dangerous. Um, <laughs> that sounds like it's... That sounds like pretty consistent from Schrader. I feel like he was the one complaining about having to stop shooting his movie during COVID. Too. Oh, yeah. And he actually did yeah. go back and finish it, from what I've read. <laughs> um, uh, Satan is Real is a song lyric he took and put in the movie to have Francis say. <laughs> Just a lot of shots of hyenas. He talked about working with hyenas, how they're not camera-friendly animals. And on their own, they're not menacing. So they have all these shots of not menacing hyenas. But then you get them in packs, and they're and you can't get them to do anything menacing on their own. And they're just, like, threatening on their own. He's like, it was a nightmare to work with. Um, you can't instruct them or train them. We spend a lot of time in second unit shooting them, and then eventually they use CGI. Not ideal. Cheche's uh, lady voice, if you notice, the demon voice spoke with the lady. That was yes. Paul Schrader's wife. Uh, what's nice. what's her name? I can't remember. Mary Beth Hurt? Is that her name? Oh, yeah. Is that, yeah, I think that so, That is yeah. his wife. Yeah. Um, what else happens in this commentary that I just lost? A uh, long scene between Marion and the Devil. Schrader modeled the demon's elongated forehead off some African tribe and early uh, Egyptian renderings of the devil. Schrader always knew Marion would drop to his knees and ask God for the strength before going into that final battle. Uh, Schrader keeps talking about John Wayne, I, I wrote. Uh, Devil is in, in the film is in the wind, and Aina is in the voice of the Captain Howdy, the spring sound. The fractional manifestations of evil are everywhere. Satan has a number of manifestations. That's what I wanted to go for. Um... He said that doesn't like the special effects at the end when Cheche is like floating in the air. He's like, it looks like he was superimposed in there, but he wasn't. We just had a giant green screen pedestal that he was sitting <laughs> on and it looks really uncanny. Um, in this demonic possession, the whole valley had been infested. It's a natural phenomenon. It's the lights. Oh, this is really interesting. Schrader said, how do you beat the devil? 
through belief, through prayer, through repetition, through God. Uh, Through repetition, through belief, through prayer, God will eventually win. Just keep up the fight. That's kind of what this movie says and what the ending is, and which is why he says that's kind of like inadequate, you know, dramatically inert. Like, how do you show repetition and how do you show belief? So that's probably another reason why the ending wasn't satisfying for the studio. I said in in a belated effort to make a scene more scary, they shot a scene where Francis is repossessed and gets, like, stabbed by Rachel or something, but... He said, thankfully, that they, he shot it wrong, so they didn't use it, and he's happy about it. Um, and that's everything I learned from the commentary. And I don't know what to do about the interview that's so good. I don't want to just read the whole fucking thing, but I kind of do. It's just, he's so interesting. He really talks about how the script was what it was. Um, and there's all this controversy with some screenwriter named Caleb Carr, who has credit on Dominion, but Caleb Carr shit all over Dominion before it was out. And then Trader's Theory is that... He, he did that because Morgan Creek was bad-mouthing the movie when they thought, you know, Rennie's version was going to be the, the version and Shredders would never see the light of day. So now Caleb Carr's name is on a movie that he's disparaged and can't say he likes, even though it's a good movie. <laughs> it's like all this crazy shit. Um, so they had the script. The script was very, very close to the film you saw. I signed on for their script, and the mantra back then was no spinning heads, no pea soup. We all sort of agreed with the idea that all the, with all the explicit horror, blood, and CGI, with all these exorcists, copies, and parodies, it's virtually impossible to compete with the original. It's better to go a completely different route, which is why I liked Caleb's idea. The idea of turning the premise on its head and having a boy glorified, an afflicted boy glorified, rather than a girl tormented, was an original way to get at this. In fact, I think at the time Jim Robinson was taking credit for that idea. Jim Robinson's the, the executive at Morton Creek, who's such a nightmare. Um... So that was the script. That's what they gave me. Frankenheimer was going to do it. I found Frankenheimer's script to be much too talky. The devil and Marion talked for almost 10 pages at the end. I just didn't know how to sustain that. So I cut that back down to a page and a half, two pages, and made a lot of other smaller changes. So there was never really a case of me asserting my wishes against Morgan Creek. Just the normal kind of back and forth you always have. Casting, budget, this and that. But in terms of the big strokes, everyone was pretty much agreed. Uh, the, the, the interviewer asked, considering you're so well known for your writing, it seems strange you didn't have much, uh, much more of a hand in writing it. He said, well, I did my pass. I did a rewrite, but this is the movie. I wa- this was the movie I wanted to make. They weren't saying the script needs work. You rewrite it. We'll decide whether to make it or not. No, they said we want to make it. So it was just a case of making certain changes that I felt made the story better, more interesting, more fun. I wasn't hired to fix a script. I wasn't th- it wasn't thought to be broken. Uh, he's talked about his religious background. I'm not Catholic. I was raised just Calvinist. I went to church schools, went to Calvin College uh, and seminary. For postgrad, I went on to UCLA, but I was raised in the bosom of the Christian Reformed Church, which is a just Calvinist church. So yes, I had a religious background. Um, I dropped out of pre-sem. Uh, if you're raising a background of moral concerns where your actions have consequences, where you will be judged at the end of your life, you put on the scale and weigh no matter where your life takes you, you never get away from that. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so Schrader once described the exorcist, I think I mentioned before, as the greatest metaphor in cinema, God and the devil in the same room arguing over the body of a little girl. Um, so he liked the original film. It was more of an encumbrance. If I hadn't liked it, the prequel would have been easier. There's no way I can compete with Friedkin. Um, he asked about his, uh, other sequels. Well, John Borman's uh, is far too ambitious. It's all over the place. Blatty's, which suffered because he was relatively inexperienced as a director, but also from the fact that it was remade into a different film after he finished. One thing I like about the prequel is that you're free from The Exorcist. All you had to do was have Marin meet the devil and make sure that he survives. You didn't have to reference anything. Georgetown was 25 years in the future, and you could do it as a period film. Rennie, in his commentary, talks about how accelerated filmmaking has become. 
how many more setups and shots there are on average from today and how fast films are made. When you look at this film, it's quite leisurely by those standards. And the thinking was, do a film set in the 40s, set in an earlier time, sort of adhere to that feeling of the time, of the filmmaking, and try to have as many floor effects as possible and shoot it in a kind of old-fashioned way. Um, he was asked, given the lackluster quality of the sequels, were you ever afraid of attaching your name? And he laughs and says, I've done unlikely things over my career. I've lacked the fear of doing something that could come up and slap me in the face. I've never been afraid of stepping up to the plate and taking a swing. Talking about the production himself, he says James Robinson and Morgan Creek had every bit of casting down to the smallest role uh, approved of. Uh, Stellan, he, uh, straight says he went for Stellan, Starsguard. Um, Morgan Creek representative Greg Milker has released a statement declaring that from the beginning of this project, neither Warner Bros. Morgan Creek or Caleb Carr has ever wanted to deliver a film with projectile vomit and spinning heads, I can promise you that. Yet they rejected your film for containing none of those elements. This is where he talks about buyer's remorse. Uh, when they went out, oh, I already read that part about, about buying the Lexus. Uh, you were asked to add eight to ten more minutes at up the scare factor. Uh, I don't know if it was that many. We did add a scene at the end that is now cut out. We added that while shooting. Rachel comes to the hospital with a knife, and Father Francis is lying there, and the demon jumps into Francis. He turns into Captain Howdy. She kills him. This we added while we were in Morocco. We shot it wrong. It didn't work. It looked like... It looked really, we tried to fix it with CGI, but it looked really hokey. Uh, I, ex I executed it badly. So when it came to putting together my cut, there certainly wasn't money to reshoot that sequence, so I was happy to drop it because it hadn't been the original script. Tell me about the first time Morgan Creek saw a cut of the film. <laughs> this is where he says, Schrader's <laughs> si size. <laughs> uh, this would have been May 8th, and that would have been 2003. I showed it, and it was about two hours and ten minutes long. Jim was there. We talked a little bit about it. Not much. I said, it's a little long. Let me pull out about 10 minutes. I'll show it to you again. I thought I'd get notes. I never get. I never got notes. Usually at that point, you get notes. Notes upon notes. <laughs> notes about every single thing. When I showed a two-hour version next week, Jim didn't even show up. <laughs> the editor was fired then, and I was told to go home. They wanted to re-edit the movie to make it scarier. I said, you can't re-edit it to make it scarier. You might be able to fix a few little things. The problem isn't the editing. The problem is the premise. You're not going to scare the bejesus out of people when you have Checha getting better rather than de degenerating. It just doesn't work that way. And I think they came to realize that because originally they were just going to do some reshoots and the reshoots were getting longer and longer. Finally, they started to realize the only way to make a horror movie was to go in there and change the premise. What specifically did they want to reshoot? The exorcism? Well, they were looking to reshoot anything to make it scarier. It can have a horror element. It just can't be the rock and roll horror that is now the norm. Now, James Robinson oversaw saw a cut of this film. Did you see it? Schrader says yes. How drastically different? Uh, well, he took about 20 minutes out, but the truth was he couldn't make it more frightening because he didn't have the footage. <laughs> were you aware at that point that Robinson had a tendency to become actively involved during post-production? He says, not as aware as I am now. Um, I've dealt with a lot of tough guys in the movie business, and I figured there's just another one of them, and I'd be all right. The first indication I had was when I was shooting and one of the producers said to me, you know, it's not that bad. Jim doesn't really bother you that much while you're shooting. And I thought, wait a minute. If it doesn't bother you while you're shooting, does that mean... And yes, he does. Uh, <laughs> given the fact the studio's complaints that the film wasn't scary enough, do you feel that you understand the horror genre? It's not a medium you typically work in. I'm not a horror director. As I said to Stellan, I said, give me two guys in a kitchen arguing any time over stuff blowing up. Um... And the guy says, all right, let's get nasty. Let's talk about Caleb Carr, your most outspoken critic. He's made some nasty accusations about you. At what point did the animosity begin? Schrader says, I never met Caleb. He lives about two hours north of me. I live up in Westchester. I called him up and said I had some ideas for some changes in the script, so we agreed to meet halfway, but he called to say he couldn't make it. I said, fine, perhaps easier for me to make these changes anyway. 
I think he was probably offended by that. But in truth, if you know pretty well what you want to change and you're a writer yourself, it's much easier just to do it yourself than to stand over another writer and dictate. So I don't know, Caleb. I've heard, I heard he has a bit of a hair trigger. He's quoted as saying, Schrader's rewrite consisted literally of taking out some key dialogue scenes that we thought were excessive, that he thought were excessive, meaning he couldn't stage them, and adding a couple of walk-on characters in an effort to get himself a writing credit. <laughs> Schrader says, well, he obviously doesn't know anything about writing credit. <laughs> For a director to get writing credit, 50% of the script entirely has to be new. If you're, an, if you're another writer, only 33%. If you want a credit as a director, you have to literally throw out half the script. I've been in enough arbitrations to know that nothing I was doing would get me credit. He hasn't been in arbitration, so he doesn't know that. And the scenes he's talking about are those long talking debates between Cheche Demon and Marin, which, of course, I didn't know how to stage. I thought they were unstageable. Uh, you know, you have a 10-page scene with two people talking, and all the dialogue is essentially what you hear in a college dorm after about a, uh, after about midnight and two beers and a joint. You know, it's one of those discussions, what is evil and good? Of course I couldn't shoot it. It was unshootable. One of the accusations he made was that you took the film for a paycheck as a way to get into more mainstream films. Schrader said, well, you should talk. It was not my project. I didn't, didn't originate it. It was someone else's project. The moment someone hires you to do something they have developed, you're being hired. So I guess if he wants to say I was hired, then he's right. And yes, I would, I would have done it for free. And yes, I wouldn't have done it for free. I'm quite sure I got much less than Rennie Harlan did. Did you and Caleb talk much about the production process? One phone call. Uh, the one phone call where he said he would meet halfway. Oh, yeah. And I guess the second phone call where he said he couldn't make it. In the first phone call, I laid out certain areas I want to talk about and, uh, and then we'd, about when we meet. I want to talk about the verbosity of some of the scenes. Caleb's one of those writers who feels that t if something is worth saying, it's worth saying twice and how to make something more interesting. Uh, then why do you think he bears you such resentment? I'm told by people who know him that that's just him, that he has a reputation for going off on people and the, on things, saying unconsidered things. You have to realize that when he said those things, he was back in the Morgan Creek stable. After I was fired and they wanted to rewrite the movie, they brought him back. After we gave the interview, he was fired again, and another writer was hired, and another. Morgan Creek and I had signed a piece of paper saying we agreed not to disparage each other. When that interview appeared, the DGA lawyer called up Morgan Creek and said, this guy's on the payroll and he disparaged Schrader. And they said, you're right, we'll tell him to stop. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was put out there as a mouthpiece to start a negative vibe on the film because they were going to dump it. Uh, he talks about his great relationship with Vittorio. Um, <laughs> this fucking interview, he's bringing up Caleb Carr. He says, Caleb's interesting. He says, you, don't, you and Vittorio don't get along. <laughs> he says, how would he know? Has he ever met Vittorio? Was he ever on set? What you're dealing with are the words that are being whispered in Caleb's ear from someone in the production company to start spreading bad vibes about me that they can't spread themselves. And so the interviewer goes, so in some ways, Caleb is a safe scapegoat. And Swader goes, no, I'm the scapegoat. Someone had to take the fall for the fact that they had to make the movie again. It wasn't going to be Jim Robinson. Uh, now, after all the arguments with the fire, did you quit uh, with the studio? Did you quit or were you fired? People say different things. This is interesting. I was fired because the DGA contract stipulates that the original director is allowed to do the reshoots. I was asked to step aside and not do the reshoots and let them hire another director. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Whereupon a bill of particulars was drawn up against me, accusing me of things that caused them financial loss. Being drunk on set, refusing to work, being late for work, alienating actors, a whole list of things, none of which were true, all of which were made up on the call. The DGA called me up and said, look, this is clearly bogus, but they're willing to watch you spend 50000 on lawyers, 100000 on lawyers to prove them wrong. They're willing to burn you. If you win, you win the right to stand there and say, action and cut, that's all, because they're not going to give you any control. If you lose, you lose a lot of money. This is a no-brainer. That's how they got me to allegedly quit. Um, did any of the supposedly injured parties in the production speak out in your defense? I never got that far in life and in this business. You start getting that tar brush out once you work over, once they work over with that tar brush, almost anything can make you clean again. Almost nothing can make you clean again. There was no upside. 
Does it, he asks if it feels like it affects his reputation. He says not those specifically, but it doesn't do anybody's reputation any good to be taken off of film, which is why I've worked so long to get this film to exist. Because no matter who you're talking to, your best friend, your wife, you tell them, I made a movie that was really good, but they didn't release it. Nobody really, nobody <laughs> believes you. They just look at you and think, oh, Paul, poor, poor Paul Strader. Look at the, deni- the denial he's in. He really thinks he made a good movie. Of course he did. Nobody would pay for a $35 million movie and then just put it on a shelf. You can't convince anyone it was any good because it's such a financial folly. The greatest thing about having this film pub- publicly seen is letting people decide for themselves. And I don't have to spend my life telling people, you know, that film is actually pretty good. <laughs> uh, what was your initial reaction to her- hearing you've been replaced by Rennie Harlan? I was surprised you took the job because it's not a very desirable one. You know, being second in line, being restrained by the scandal, the nature of Morgan Creek not going back to Morocco. I know some other directors who turned down the job. It's a money thing. That's the only way you can take that job. Rennie can say whatever he wants, but why else would you take that job if you can get another one? If you've got a nice selection of jobs, you choose the one that's both satisfying and rewarding. If you don't have much of a selection, you choose the one that they're offering. <laughs> <laughs> Burn! Um... <laughs> He says they almost worked together, but it never happened. Him and Harlan. Um, he said Harlan was select. Uh, the interviewer said Harlan was selected because Morgan Creek was screening the film for potential directors to generate feedback for what they would want in reshoots. And Harlan suggested the entire film be remade. How did it feel <laughs> that your film was being screened that way? He said, "Well, it was gone. It didn't exist anymore." And the guy's like, "Right, but you labored on it, and I was being shown as an example of what not to do." Uh, it's not that unusual circumstance. It usually happens with scripts. That's pretty standard. You don't do it with directors because it's too expensive, but you do it all the time with writers. Uh, he says he didn't follow the production that closely, the Harlan production. He was in contact with Stellan, and Stellan would tell me things that were happening. I would hear how the budget kept getting bigger and when Mann was fired, and that's when it looked like they'd have to start over. He says Stellan wasn't happy, but it must have been lucrative. He and Rennie are friends and worked together on Deep Blue Sea. Obviously, he got paid, and he did a different performance. One of the fascinating things about the two movies was that it's not only a different directing style, it's a different acting style. In my film, he was playing the sort of tormented Max von Sydow, Ingmar Bergman character. In Harlan's film, he played Harrison Ford. That's what he said. Um, uh, I don't know if there's anything more I need to read from that. That was all interesting, though. Oh, there's, a, there's that part where he talks about uh, he saw Harlan's movie with Vladdy with in D.C., he had a pretty good idea what I was in. I had a pretty idea what I was in for. What I feared most was that it would be pretty good. If it was pretty good, good enough, it would be assumed that mine was worse, and any chance of my film being resurrected would be gone. So I sat there and watched, and I was rather happy with it. I thought this is really bad. And then when Linda Blair showed up in the form of Isabella Scorpupo, I, I was sitting next to Blatty, and Blatty was doing uh, was much more upset than I was because it brought back to him all of that he had went through with Morgan Creek during uh, Exorcist Three. <laughs> they like went literally went to the movies together and watched. They'd never met. They'd never met before, and they uh, and they did this together. Yes. So like they're doing the end of the Exorcist where he's like, we should catch a movie. Sometime. Yes. Not at the end, but you know. Isn't that yeah. beautiful? I love that. <laughs> Uh, so Blatty's still very sore, very angry about that experience. He invited me to come down and said, "Let's watch it together." We had dinner, and he was huh. and he was like completely. When the girl sort of spider walks across the ceiling, he was like, they took that from me. They took that from me. <laughs> but to be honest, I was kind of relieved that it didn't work on any level. If the reviews had been 50% favorable rather than 8 or 10%, that would have just sealed any chance I might have to release the original version. Um, 
one would never know that you're secretly pleased with this. There's a photo of you and Blatty together in front of the movie posted for Harlan's film. You two look like the most miserable, unhappy men <laughs> in the entire universe. <laughs> Schrader says, I, I, go I ahead. Them because like I I feel like you hear so many filmmakers even for stuff they work on saying like oh I don't want to watch it after it's done or actors maybe it's more for actors but I think filmmakers some too will sometimes say oh you know I can't watch it again it'll I'll just think about things I could have done better or I wish I'd done differently or you know I can only see the flaws or I can only see the experience making it not being in, in not seeing the film itself and obviously this is not a movie that either Blatty or uh, or Schrader made themselves exactly but it's a similar situation. And you always hear people being like kind of taking the high road, being like, well, I haven't seen, you know, in situations like this, if they're if they're booted off a movie or whatever, the, you know, Snyder uh, and Justice League, he's always like, oh, yeah, he hasn't seen the, the theatrical cut two years and he just uh, three years now. And he hasn't just just never happened to see it. Um, and I always kind of have to suspect these people are full of shit, right? That yes, they like, 100%. You know, how would you not be curious enough? So I love that not only is Schrader, do Schrader and Blatty own it. I'm coming around on, on William Peter Blatty. He always seemed like a dick to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's dead now, but uh, I'm yeah. glad you came around. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, but that Blatty and Schrader not only admit that they went to like that they were curious enough to watch, but they like made a day of it. I think he, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm pretty sure. The theater. I'm they pretty didn't even, sure. Like, wait for DVD. No, I'm, I'm just gonna say I'm pretty sure Schrader flew in on a plane for that. <laughs> That's that, that beats paying 150 bucks for a private tenant rental. I think is flying somewhere to watch uh, <laughs> your shitty Exorcist sequel that you were prequel that you were bo- booted off. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, yeah, this interview is just so good. I can't stop reading it. There's all that Rennie Harlan stuff about the commentary, and then he says. Uh, uh, Jim Robinson's probably out of pocket on these two films when you throw in the overhead of maybe in the vicinity of $100 million. That's a lot of money. The thrust of the industry is essentially DVD-driven now. Most films are released theatrically to promote the DVD sales. They start to realize there's more money to be made here on DVD than the theatrical release because people start to think they're buying a theater movie instead of a made-for-cable movie. So his battle between hubris and greed has been very touch-and-go because Morgan Greek needs to make some money. They need the money the Schrader exorcists can bring in. Um, <laughs> and then the guy's like, they shot themselves in the foot. They said your movie was bad. And between, uh, and then finance another version, and then the other version flops, what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, this is the version we said you're going to hate, but it's good now. Uh, (laughs) The position is a really tricky one for them. First of all, Robinson doesn't care for critic much. He doesn't show his films for critics. Uh, I wrote up a press kit for Belgium, and I called up Morgan Creek and said, can I see the one for the Harlan film? And they said, we don't have one. (laughs) And I said, oh, that's right. (laughs) You don't need a press kit when there aren't press screenings. Um, (laughs) What else? Talks about it being a curious chapter in film history. Talks about using the maggot baby shot as the only thing. Talks about the compromise they had to make being like no CGI and he had no ADR time. There's no ADR in his version. They had to just make do with a really quick mix. Um, yeah, so this interview is fantastic. This is like the number one Exorcist fan site since 1999. It's like a very old-fashioned fan site. This interview is from Jason Stringer on CaptainHowdy.com. That interview only has 3,000 views somehow. It is absolutely incredible just to have this guy who had just he's like i think the first person to have seen the trader cut even before schrader saw a print of it and yeah he got to review it and interview schrader and schrader was clearly down to talk about anything and this guy was clearly down to like rub him in any wrong fucking way and (laughs) see what he said and he didn't get mad ever um so i guess the long and short of it is i think dominion is probably the best exorcist sequel Maybe not if you if you really like The Exorcist 3, which I do. But in terms of like a pure sequel to the movie The Exorcist, I'm going to go ahead and say Dominion's my favorite one. It has elements of the original, has elements of all the sequels. 
at least stylistically, if not directly. And I think it's a really compelling movie that the story actually works, despite the fact that Morgan Creek tried to tried their damnedest to make it not work in the Rennie Harlan version. Um, I think Paul Schrader made a Paul Schrader film first and Exodus movie second, but I don't think that's bad. And I think it still works as both. And um, I was pleasantly surprised by how good it was. Yeah, for sure. I, I was too. I really was even having heard that this was much better than the Harlan version. I had heard it's much better, but still not very good. And I don't know if that just if the other version just colored people's perception of this, or they kind of were sick of this story, having really having seen you know an earlier version of or a later version earlier of this story already, you know, less than a year before, and that just colored their reaction or what. But yeah, I thought this was really is surprisingly good. I still enjoy the kind of the character stuff and actually just three with George C. Scott probably the most of any of that any of those movies but like Exorcist 3 I found the story kind of through line of this one more immediately engaging to be honest than the, the original 73 movie where I have a whole a bit of a hard time keying into the characters and really kind of you know getting into kind of the spooky spirit of it this this movie the story storyline felt you know it's like it's kind of a it's, it's a straight line but has lots of like kind of straightery deviations and touches that make it really worthwhile so yeah I agree it's definitely you know it, it's the easy case to make for this being the best of the uh, the sequels even though I'm not sure I, you know kind of toss up between this and three and certainly the straighter version as we see feels like a like. <laughs> it took <laughs> I can't believe it took like multiple versions for this to happen but it seems like the only Exorcist sequel that feels like okay the Schrader version at least is not compromised at all you know two and three have bits of them that are you know either mangled or in three you know not exactly what 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 Blatty had in mind but it's funny that it went so far towards that 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 kind of typical the studio gets the movie and then says oh no this needs to change that it resulted in a whole other movie that sucks. And then because of that, it boomerangs back around to this being the only extra sequel that's pretty much executed as the filmmaker wanted. <laughs> that's mind-blowing when you put it that way, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, so if I had to do a quick ranking of the franchise, I would do Exorcist. I'm going to go ahead and just say Dominion. Exorcist 3. Uh, Exorcist 2, is that it? And then, then uh, the beginning... And then the beginning. <laughs> Exorcist three and a half or four and a half, whatever that is. Yeah, I. Uh, this is. I'm gonna preface this just by saying this is pure in terms of how much I enjoyed them only, uh, because I'm weird about this series. I would say in terms of my pure enjoyment, my rankings would go three, Schrader's four, one, two, and the the Harlan four. Love it. Uh, <laughs> we've done it. Uh, as promised, if Jesse's down to do a repossessed bonus episode, I yes. will do it. Uh, we'll put that on the Patreon. We need to yeah. we need to reward the Patreon subscribers. We haven't done anything for them in a long time. Uh, as good a time as any to plug the Patreon. Pay money for us to do nothing. Just kidding. Uh, it helps us support the show. It really does help. But more importantly, please give us uh, nice reviews on iTunes. We're at 104. Let's do a, see 110 by next week. Um, and uh, our next series... I don't know what it is. I think I know what it is. I want to talk to Jesse off mic and we'll figure it out. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Ooh.
I was hoping you'd be back.